kudos to the men who managed to keep it to half an hour and work on it. Uh, a lot of you have been asking for an update. Uh, hopefully you saw the prayer request go out yesterday. Um, we had a student being, uh, well, on the border of a rage or in a rage, and we were all kind of on call to come down and restrain him if we had to, uh, which happens uh, on occasion. Um, so thank you for praying. It did de-escalate. Um, his name is Sam. Please continue praying for him. He does profess faith in Jesus Christ, but he... Uh, he is quite convinced of his own right and wrong of it, and uh, when you tell him he's wrong or give him a discipline or a confrontation, um, it gets ugly fast. Related to my mic at all. So I don't know where that sound's coming from. It's, I turned my mic off and it kept going. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, so Sam had gotten an argument with one of the other boys, ended up punching him. And um, so when he got the hours of assignment for like chopping wood or whatever else we do uh, for the discipline, he spiraled out then and was near his rage. The last rage he was in, he overturned our ping pong table and jumped up and down on it and broke that. So um, we didn't have to restrain him that time. We've had to restrain him before. He has charges pressed on him for punching a staff. Um, one of the times before that. Um, so Sam's got a lot of anger and rage, and this is what's led him to be at the ranch, was him deciding his parents don't know what they're doing. He knows better than them. He knows better than his teachers, society in general, uh, and uh, de-escalates into his rage. So keep praying for Sam. Uh, it did de-escalate. He's doing better this morning, um, although two other boys got in a fight this morning. So exciting days at the ranch. Um, this has been a really gr good group of guys. They've been calm. Uh, we've been having kind of a peaceful time with them, other than one who's like really extra. A lot, a lot of stuff going on. So this is just that reminder that we're we're in a battle. So please continue praying for us. Is that evocative enough a title? Worthless worship. Let me pray. God, I love you. And it's for you that I stand here. minister to those boys, and it's for you that I draw breath, and that I live, Lord. God, may the words of my mouth be honoring to you. God, let these be your words. I pray that you pour out your spirit on me, pour out your spirit on this congregation, and God, that you would change us, that you would purify us and make us clean, and God, that you would make our worship acceptable. God, we love you. Uh, so over the last few months at the ranch, uh, in devotions, oftentimes, um, been getting uh, questions about the law. I'm in First Kings with the boys right now um, during my devotions on Thursday nights, just working them through First Kings. We had done Luke and Acts, and we wanted another book. They all wanted Revelation. I told them no. Um, I made them pick another book, and we settled on First Kings. Um, so we're in First Kings. We're talking a lot about the law, about the kings and whatnot. We're not too far into it right now. But um, we keep coming back to the holiness of God. Um, I keep coming back to the fact that God isn't just some lovey-dovey pushover that's begging us to bless him with our presence. He 
He's not just turning a blind eye to how we manage to get into his presence. We talk a lot about the Old Testament law. That God absolutely insisted on us approaching him only in the approved manner. Now that relationship looked pretty different in the garden. But once we enslaved ourselves to sin, uh, that relationship gets real difficult. And there is only one way to approach God. And he gave us that way. He gave it through animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood. Now it escalates once he gives the law and the Mosaic law. Uh, with even more structure. Uh, This is the God. We worship the God. He didn't change. He's still the God who insisted on being worshipped and served through the very particular actions, the sacrificial system, of a particular leader, the high priest, that comes from a particular family, the family of Aaron, who's part of a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. And he had to come, that comes from a particular nation of Israel, And they had to do it in a particular place. First, the tabernacle, uh, then the temple located in Jerusalem, and on a particular day. That is our God. If you want to come to God, you do it his way. And he's not going to just ignore all of that. When priests tried to innovate, fire erupted out of the temple and consumed them. We'll try this way, we'll try that way. When kings tried to sacrifice, instead of having their priests do it, they lost their their kingdoms, their rulership. And then the law given to Moses also enumerated dozens of ways that a priest or a person in general could become unclean and wouldn't even be allowed to worship. It would bar them from the temple. It would bar them from coming into the presence of the Lord and serving him until they'd gone through uh, a cleansing process, a day a lot of the laws were about a day. In the evening they could be clean, but they had to go through the cleansing process. Don't come into my presence until you've done this. Because you are unclean and I will slay you. So we talk a lot with the boys about that. That is our God. This was the method given in the Old Testament. And those rigorous insistences didn't just disappear in a thin air. He didn't just throw that all by the wayside and said, hey, I'm different now, I changed. Everybody come on in, I'll just ignore it. Just however you can get to me, come to me, and I'm just going to pretend like we're all good. He continued, even today, continued to strike dead those who did try to approach him in an unworthy manner. You can check out Acts when Ananias and Sapphira come to him and lie to uh, the leader that he put over them because they lied to the Holy Spirit and he struck them dead. And the communion warnings in 1 Corinthians, even believers falling dead asleep because they're approaching him in an unworthy manner. And yet, everything has changed. Because it's been fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. There's no more sacrifice. For Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice. There's no more temple in Jerusalem. The veil was torn at the death of Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, we get the tongues of fire coming down. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells his people. The tongues of fire are reminiscent of the pillar of flame that would come down on the tabernacle or the temple to say, I am here. Come and worship me. Everybody knew Moses was talking with God in the temple when the pillar of flame came at night or the cloud came during the day. That's the tongue of flame that came on each of the believers. The temple's done away with. Now it's the temple, the body of Christ, 
church, you, you, everything has changed. Does God still care how he's approached? Absolutely. It's through Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man comes to the Father except through me. Then the other day, the boys were asking, if Leviticus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy are the law books of the Old Testament, then what is the law book of the New Testament? Interesting question. Um, somebody threw out there, well, maybe it's Romans because of the logic of it and how much of uh, kind of how now shall we live is in the latter part of Romans. Sounds great. I think a case can be made, but I think it's Matthew. I think it's Matthew because you get Jesus saying, look, this is what my kingdom looks like. Old Testament, here's the kingdom. New Testament, here's the new kingdom. This is what it looks like. And we get this uh, Moses on the mountain of Mount Sinai, and we get Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount enumerating what the kingdom should look like, what it will look like. And he gives this new kingdom law, this law of love. And he takes a lot of the commands and he internalizes them. He takes them from what you do, murdering somebody, and makes it about the hate and anger in your heart. He takes it from what you do, uh, committing adultery, having sex with somebody you're not married to, and he makes it an issue of the heart, even looking at somebody you're not married to and lusting sexually after them. Uh, so he internalizes all these laws. It doesn't relieve it, it escalates it. It ups the ante. It actually makes it harder to meet the requirements of this new kingdom. So I think it's Matthew, this new law book. Um, you also get in Matthew 22, he sums up the entire law. How does he do it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your mind, and soul. And the second commandment is like it. To sum up the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Here's this new law for the new kingdom, this internalization of the old law. And you get here, Matthew 15, where we're going to look at the clean, unclean laws. Um, you can go to Leviticus 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and on if you want to see what it what it required in the Old Testament, we'll glance at it, but we won't go there. Uh, but here we get this, this new idea here. So before we uh, jump into our passage, I do want to take a little bit of a running start. Uh, back in chapter 11 or so, we started getting this escalation of polarization. So some are going to say, yes, Lord, and follow him, the crowds and whatnot. Others are going to become more and more antithetical to Jesus Christ and and come after him not to follow him, but to come after him to um, try to condemn him, critique him, criticize him. You're going to get that in the leaders and whatnot. And so a lot of the commentaries will point to that. Um, in this section, about 11 to 16 or 12 to 16, you get more and more of that. The parables are all about that. We have the soils, right? Some are going to say, yes, Lord. Others are going to turn away from him. Um, some are going to sell everything and go digging in the field for that treasure. Um, and then others are arresting and beheading John the Baptist. And so you're getting this, this polarization of response to Jesus Christ. He's still in Galilee this whole time. He hasn't gone out of Galilee. According to Matthew, he's just spending this time up in the north, um, in the immediate vicinity. And so in the most immediate context, last week he fed 5,000 people miraculously. Crowds are coming and, and, and worshiping. Um, and he's feeding them. He literally walks on water. It's become an idiom today. Oh, he walks on water. Um, it's, Jesus literally walks on water. It's why it's an idiom today. And he expected his students to be able to do the same. He does chastise Peter, O ye of little faith. Um, Peter did step out on his own initiative, it looks like. But after he falls, Jesus lifts him up. There is a chastisement there. 
there's this expectation that his students could have, should have, would have. Amazing things. He lands on shore, and what everybody hears about him, and they start bringing all the people to him. Heal, 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 please heal. What a response. So it's no surprise that people are starting to come from Jerusalem. The scribes and Pharisees, according to our passage, head, in, head up from Jerusalem. They've got to see this guy. They want part of the action. What do they want to know? They want to know, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? Swing and a miss, right? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's what you're here for? This guy's doing all of this, claims to be the king of this new kingdom. It's obvious he's the Messiah, and you want to know why his followers aren't washing their hands. Hey, there we go. Was that me or was that you? Hopefully that was me. We'll find out. Um, Here's a quick outline. Jerusalem comes to critique Jesus in verses 1 through 2, the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem. This is the first interplay in Matthew that we see between him and the leaders of Jerusalem. Uh, Then we move on. Pharisees are critiqued and dismissed by Jesus. This isn't uh, chronological in the verse. Uh, It's by subject. So first they're critiqued in verses 3 through 9. And then he just dismisses them in verses 12 through 14. We see that. Um, then we get rulings of the new kingdom, or in the new kingdom. We have this clean, unclean idea. It's first stated in verses 10 through 11, and then it's explained, because the disciples aren't doing so hot, in 15 through 20. Uh, and then you also, just woven throughout that, you have the Decalogue, which is just a fancy term for the Ten Commandments. Um, so you have the Decalogue upheld and internalized in verse 4 and 19. We'll watch that pattern. So uh, I'm going to read the whole thing first because I like to do that, and then I'm going to jump back here and speed up. Uh, Chapter 15 of Matthew. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And yet you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, then you need not honor his father. And so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Then he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see? that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out 
of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. All right. So back to our passage, or back to the start, sorry. Um, Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Again, this is the first time in Matthew that Jerusalem is, has in, interplayed with Jesus. Um, people are starting to come and ask, and, uh, and this foreshadows him ending up in Jerusalem with the confrontations going on there. It's not going to go great. There's going to be confrontations, and it starts to show that. Uh, what are they concerned about? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Um, to be honest, when I first read it, I was like, wait, isn't that a command in Scripture? Um, the Levitical commands about hand washing are strictly for the priests, and it's strictly for before they enter the temple or before they eat food that has been sacrificed, uh, which only the priests could do, anything that had been sacrificed, only the priests were to eat it, and they were supposed to wash their hands before that. By this period, um, the uh, first century, uh, you have this oral tradition going on where all Jews are supposed to wash all the way up to the elbow. There's, it's all really elaborate about how you're supposed to do, do that. It's all the time, anytime you're about to eat, plus other times outside of that. Uh, it also includes certain washing rituals with your cups and your plates and your couches. Mark actually goes into it in his parallel passage. If you want to look up the parallel, parallel passage, it's in Mark 7. He records the same same stories going on with slight variations. So Mark actually shares a little bit more about the oral tradition. It won't become written tradition until the Mishnah is codified uh, in the late 100s, so over 100 years later. Uh, but right now, it's just an oral tradition that's been added on top of Scripture. Why has it been added on top? Because the Pharisees are so afraid of breaking the law. They don't want to break the law, so what do they do? This is a line you're not supposed to cross. This is the law, so let's draw some lines back here. That way we won't ever get to that line, right? That's the idea. It's a hedge around the law is how they would talk about it. Um, but what these become are sanctimonious, hold this and you're righteous and look at you, you're so so special and you're, you're well beyond what God has required of you. Um, and upholding that, they got more and more focused on their rules and less and less on the heart of Yahweh, the heart of God. So they're concerned about breaking the traditions of their elders. Now the questions of ritual purity, it's already arisen in Matthew in various ways, notably in the miracle stories of chapters 8 and 9. Jesus has touched a leper. That makes you unclean and unfit for worship. He's been in contact with an unclean Gentile. All Gentiles are unclean. Only clean people are Jews. If you come in contact with a Gentile, you're now unclean and unfit for worship. Uh, visited Gentile territory with its herd of pigs, an unclean animal. Uh, he has interacted with demons that have been described as unclean. Been touched by a woman with a menstrual bleeding disorder. Again, blood is unclean. Coming in contact with that, especially emissions from body parts like that, uh, makes you unclean. And he's touched a dead body. Touching the dead makes you unclean. Jesus has already challenged this idea. Uh, as a healer, it's just integral to his ministry. He's, he's coming in contact with un, uh, unclean all the time. Uh, 
and just his more general social involvement with tax collectors and sinners. All of that makes him unclean. Remember the Good Samaritan. What was the what were their concerns or their stated concerns? Why they didn't help this man? Why they didn't show mercy and depth around him? Because they didn't want to be made unclean. Because they had duties, they had responsibilities, they had stuff to take care of in the temple, or they had to be clean, right? They couldn't risk their cleanness for the sake of mercy. We see Jesus continually getting down in the gutter again and again. Exalting himself. Uh, so again, verse 2 here, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. I've got them up next to each other because verse 3 says, he answered them, not with an answer, uh, but with a counter question, which was a rabbinic tradition. Rabbis did this constantly. Jesus did it a lot. Um, not going to give him the answer. He's going to challenge the, the very nature of the question. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So the Pharisees are walking around feeling pretty good about themselves. Why aren't you taking care of the traditions of the elders? And Jesus turns around and says, what are you talking about? Your traditions make void the very word of God. He's going to explicate that, give the example. Uh, the word is Corbin. God is going to say, he's going to say, for God commanded... Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's going to be from Exodus 20.12 is the commandment, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Um, if you will, this, the first commandment was a promise, by the way. It's quoted later. And it, you will be, it will go well with you and you will live long on the land, in the land or on the earth, depending on how you translate that. And then reviling or cursing or dishonoring your father or mother must surely die. That's Exodus 21.17. Pretty heavy commandments. A lot of people actually suppose, uh, who's our only apostle that died of old age? John. Do you know who took care of Jesus' mother? John. Uh, the, The tie has been made saying that the fact that Jesus gave his mother over to John to care for, you never see that actually taken. You don't see it actually happen, but it's Presumably, what happened, John took care of Mary in her old age. And um, as he took care of this adoptive mother, honor your father and mother, for it will go well with you and you will live long in the land. Might this be why John was the one to survive? It's been suggested by others other than myself. I'm willing to accept it, but take it or leave it. Um, It's interesting working in a ministry where my ministry wouldn't exist in the Old Testament troubled teenage boys would have been killed if the Old Testament law was followed. Um, Many of them have struck their father or mother. The disrespect is... I've I've sat on the phone with some of these moms that they've hidden in the closet just to get away from their son um, to be able to have this conversation with me. Um, We've had boys holding mom in a headlock, trying to drag her back in the car when they're trying to drop their son off at the ranch. Um, Vile, vile things are spoken by these boys to their parents, and parents have no recourse. What what can they do? Uh, We live in a society that's more and more against any kind of uh, punishment that hurts, discipline that hurts. Um, It's just tough to have. Um, So spankings are more and more on the out. Uh, Lots of things that would have been done Old Test- I'm not saying we should go back to the Old Testament law, by the way. Um, but we do tell the boys every now and then, do you realize what kind of programs existed for you back in the Old Testament? It's called stoning outside the village. 
And uh, we don't tell that to the New Testament. Moving to grace and talking about how good it is that we live in the New Testament dispensation of Jesus Christ, and that's just not how he does that. But we live in a society that's more and more tying the hands of parents. I got an email recently from Microsoft. We have an Xbox, and I have a kid's account set up for my kids, and I get an email that says, FYI, uh, we're removing the parent lock that you have on your child's um, your child's account because she's now 13, and the laws in your area say you can't control her her uh, her screen time. Uh, that's on her. She's now old enough that she can make those decisions, and your the law in your area, your region, uh, means that you're no longer allowed to monitor what she's on. So that's where we are in a society that continues to have to kill a child that spat in your face and cursed your name. And now uh, a deputy came when we had to do a takedown and somebody was hurt and we had to do a, uh, a report. And um, so the deputy came out and he had just transferred from Ohio and he told us how in Ohio it's even worse with the deputies if, if there's a 10 or 11 year old or 12 year old, I don't remember the age uh, cutoff, but if they're wailing on you as a deputy, as a sheriff, whatever, you're not even allowed to, you're not allowed to grab hands, you're not allowed to restrain, you're not allowed to cuff, you have to check the gun and take it. You're not allowed to do anything proactively to inhibit this child and its rage. So we've come a long ways from being able to put a child in a, in a, in a reserve place. And we find ourselves more and more suffering the consequences of that decision. God cares about how you treat your mother and father. integral to how he speaks his authority into our lives. It's integral to how he leads us and guides us. It's how society works. As a parent ages, we're to take care of our mother and father. The word honor actually means tamao, the Greek word, actually means to add weight to them. It's the idea of heaping them with gold. And he actually adds value to you as a parent. You're meant to take care of them. And the Pharisees found a way around it. Pharisees say, as long as you tell your father or mother, oh, what I was going to give to you in your old age, I've given it to God. Neat, right? I've given it for use in the temple. I get to use it still as long as I'm alive. That's the Corbin law. I still get to use my wealth, but it's dedicated for the temple, which means I don't have to give it to you. It's called the Corbin. It was codified in the Mishnah uh, under vows late 100s, but it's already a major part of the oral tradition. The Pharisees are far from the heart of God. They're all about just upholding their little rules and their little laws. You need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, Pharisees, you have made void, worthless, empty, the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah spoke rightly. This people honors me with their lips, heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Worthless worship. Their worship means nothing. In vain. Because they have taught doctrines that commandments are vain. Their heart is far from the heart of God. They're washing their hands, staying clean on the outside. Their hearts are so far from the heart of God that their worship 
this is logic here, parallels his use of Hosea 6.6. These aren't my words, that's why there's tiny unidentifiable script at the bottom of what I'm reading uh, it's from the commentary. In Matthew 9 and 12, in which sacrifice has replaced mercy, how much Christian activity preoccupies believers today? The things that they assume please God, yet without ever really ministering material or spiritually to the desperate needs of our world. How much of our money is tied up in church buildings or spent only on programs and activities to make ourselves happy, rather than caring for the hurt and the mix across the globe? What do we do to try to feel Christian that's far from the heart of God? I'm going to leave that question for last. What do you do this week? What do you do that makes you feel like you're hitting the mark from a checklist when really we're missing the heart of God? Mercy, justice, compassion. Hearts sold out to Jesus. Jesus finally kind of answers the question obliquely. He doesn't give it to the Pharisees, though. He turns to the crowds. He called, to the he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. Listen, as the great Shema, hero Israel. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Uh, the scribes were concerned with Jesus and his disciples' actions. Jesus was not breaking Mosaic law by what he was doing, by what his disciples were doing. And now Jesus just drops this bomb basically said, oh, you're worried about that? I'm not even worried about Leviticus 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. It's not what we eat that makes us unclean. It's contradicting Leviticus. Why? Because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus has internalized it. He's made it deeper. Uh, Mark, in his parallel passage, actually says here, and so thus Jesus made all foods clean. So we, we see it in Acts 10 with Peter's vision with the cloth coming down, all the animals on there. Everything's clean for you to eat. It's fine. No more kosher laws. Um, Gentiles are in. This is good. And it is in Acts 10, but you get a picture of it here. You get the, the bomb is dropped here. You just don't see the rippling effect until Acts 10 when the Jerusalem church is trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do with this. So this is difficult. Jesus upholds the law, right? He fulfills the law, but here he's throwing, he's taking a big chunk of it and saying, yeah, it's not about that. It's about this. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. You see this in Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is Pharisees again, right? The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, in the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Does God care about how he's approached? Does God care about how we live? Are we honor him? Now the disciples come to him and they say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And it's easy to go, well, he called them you hypocrites and said some pretty rough stuff. That must be what they're offended about. All, of the, all the commentaries point, eh, it's probably not what they're offended about. Uh, with the flow of the passage, it does look like it's the, the change to the purity law. They're like, that's a huge event. This is a huge thing for the Jews. Uh, there are three main things that set you out as, as Jewish. 
It's your food laws, Sabbath keeping, and circumcision. And Jesus has already attacked Sabbath keeping, and now he's struck against purity food laws. This is what it meant to be Jewish. So they're offended. They're scandalized is the word that they say. He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. Blind lead the blind. Both will follow. I see this as a fulfillment of what we just saw in Matthew 13, the wheat and the tear. Most commentaries pointed back to Isaiah. It talks about his vineyard, the oaks that he plants and stuff. I think this is far more. Uh, We just, Matthew 13, it's just a bit ago. And uh, the wheat and the tear. There's weeds growing in the field planted by Satan. Don't stress about it. Don't get in a kerfuffle. God's going to take care of that. They're not going to slip through unbeknownst. Let the blind lead the blind. But Peter said to him, will you explain the parable to us? Uh, is it even a parable? It's just about eating. and It doesn't even feel like a parable to me. The parable is kind of meant to hide truth a little bit and so that only those who are given the understanding can understand it. I feel like Peter's kind of looking for an out here. Um, it's clear what he means. And Peter's going, I can't live that way. This must be a parable. Can you explain it to me? Are you still without understanding? There's frustration here. Jesus is tired of the disciples not being ahead of the crowd. Uh, Mark is more exaggerated. Mark is often talked about as talking about the disciples. Um, but Matthew's not that different. Uh, like, hadn't heard that one? Um, Matthew's, Matthew's right along the same route. Uh, he's not protecting the disciples and showing them to be bright, shining paragons of Christianity. Uh, they're falling short, too. They're just barely ahead of the crowd, if at all. Do not see. That's the same word, by the way. Do you not understand? Do you not see? He's repeating himself. Don't you see? Are you kidding me right now? The message is interesting. I was looking at other translations. I don't remember what it said, but just looked up. It was like, jeez. Um, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? They're, they're missing a word, by the way. Uh, the Greek has into the toilet or into the latrine. He's literally talking about pooping. Um, it's good. Um, it's mouth, stomach, gone. It's gone. It doesn't have a moral, spiritual effect on you. It's gone. Your bacon, your meat camel now, shellfish, it's it's gone. It's expelled. Your body's designed to do that. It's done for. Um, it, it's gone. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That defiles a person. Um, Um, so you get Jesus, again, it's a repeat of verse 11, uh, just with adding proceeds from the heart, just to make that more clear of what's going on here. Um, he's being quite clear that it's what is in our heart that matters. The use of idioms is interesting here, I thought. Um, the heart in first century Judaism or first century culture, your heart is where your thoughts and will are centered. So when he talks about a heart, He's talking about your thinking and your willfulness. When he talks about your stomach, that's actually like, I love you with all my stomach, is how they would have said it in the first century. It's, this is your seat of emotions, your gut, uh, because it's different. Um, so the belly, when used as an idiom or metaphor, is where your emotions are centered. But Jesus doesn't go there with this idea. He's not tying clean, unclean foods to the stomach and then to emotions and outbursts. Instead, the food's just eliminated. It's of no consequence. Food, 
doesn't touch it. It's not a matter of what you eat, but of who you are. Romans 14 says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. This is right on the wings of a, a whole discussion about what day you keep as your Sabbath and what uh, foods you eat. He's saying nothing's unclean in itself. It depends on whether it's unclean to you. Uh, this is also in the talking about how you are in your relationship with others. Are you building one another up or is it causing them to stumble? Don't do it if it's causing others to stumble. Don't do it if you're sitting there going, is this okay for me? I really don't know that this is okay for me. I'm not really feeling like this is okay for me. I'm going to do it though. And if it goes wrong, then it goes wrong. If your conscience is telling you, if you're questioning it that much, it's unclean. Don't do it. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Back to the heart. If food doesn't touch all of this, what does? How about food for thought? Ideas, teachings, meditations. What we focus on what we set our hearts on. Colossians 3. Uh, my students just memorized Colossians 3 this last quarter. Um, and it starts, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, the word is your thinking, um, set your thinking on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We see this in our number one sin. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. If what defiles us is in our heart, and we're about to see what's in our heart, we feed our heart with our meditations. Uh, I don't want to stand here and say, you can't watch that, you can't read that, you can't come in contact with this, oh, you heard somebody cussing. It's far from what we're talking about. But the, the thoughts that you entertain, the meditations of your heart, James K.A. Smith has a book, You Are What You Love, focus on what you are centered around, what you spend your idle time thinking through, thinking about, meditating on, playing with in your head. These cultivate our soil, our roots, and they grow and they bear fruit like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. One of my great sin struggles is lust. I have to be very careful about what I watch because it takes very little to get my mind bouncing around on Images I've looked at before or struggles I've had before. Very little. So like the alcoholic who can't go in the restaurant because he might hear the tink of a glass and then all of a sudden he's salivating and wanting that drink, I have to be careful about where I go and what I look at. Because that's my alcohol. That's my addiction. And we all have them. Um, our students come to us listening to about 10 hours of music a day a lot of them, uh, mostly rap. You average 7 to 15 F-bombs per rap song in three minutes. Um, so, I mean, we did the math. It's like 700 F-bombs in one day. That's just a meditation of the heart. And those songs also talk about demean, they demean women, they demoralize uh, everything. They're anti-authority, anti-cop. Talk about meditations of the heart. That's all you're listening to. All you're listening to. 
wonder if Bill comes out of your mouth. And I'm not talking about language. I'm talking about just ugliness. These are what defile us. Um, here's the rest of our commandments. We have the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, an extension of that, sexual immorality, is having sex with a prostitute. Uh, but it's also more generally spoken of just sexual sin. Uh, theft is your eighth commandment. False witness, bearing false witness against somebody is your ninth commandment. And an extension of it, slandering somebody. So you get Jesus upholding the, 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 the Ten Commandments, four, five, or five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Mark includes thou shalt not covet in this whole conversation, so there's your ten. Mark also includes a lot of other parts to the Ten Commandments in it, and so many things there. What is in our heart? What are we feeding ourselves? What are we concentrating on, focusing on? What are we meditating in our time off? What are we repeating in our minds and our hearts again and again and again and again and again and expecting it not to influence the way I talk to my wife, the way I treat my wife, the way I treat somebody that I'm really frustrated with? So real quick, because I'm already over time, thank you guys for your patience. Um, Corbin versus God's word, tradition. What's our, what are our Corbin practices? What are those things that we do that make us feel like we're doing the Christian thing that are really missing the heart of God? I don't think that's the point of this passage. It's a, it's a tempting tangent. You can go there. It's great. But I think Jesus' point is the internalization of the law. Um, it's not about what you're doing out here. It's about your messed up heart. The Pharisees should not have walked away scandalized. The Pharisees should have walked away terrified. Whoa! That's what makes me unclean? How in the world will I ever be clean? Oh, there's a healer for that. Jesus Christ. You came to see him. You traveled miles to see him. And he's got the answer for you. You're just asking all the wrong questions. He upped the ante in Matthew 5. It's all that much harder, but Jesus can do it. So whatever we keep our minds focused on, whatever we're struggling, pornographic imaginings, judgmental dismissal of others, maybe that's your thing, uh, the slandering others in your mind, wishing we had what others have, whether that's a different life, a different job or paycheck, a different spouse, a different child, a different parent. Sorry, Dad. Uh, a different car, a different talent, something different to offer. Whether we're focused on our self-pity, no, woe is me. Oh, COVID. Boo-hoo. Life's hard. But we get to choose how we walk through that. And we have a God who says, I've got everything you need. Jesus Christ. The only one able to help us to take every thought captive to obedience. Tearing down strongholds is Jesus Christ. The Pharisees didn't need to wash their hands. That's not what they should have traveled to Jerusalem for, from Jerusalem for. They needed Jesus to heal their hearts. And so do you. So do you. Your worship is worthless because you are unclean unless your heart has been made new in Jesus Christ. The law of the Old Testament and the law of this new kingdom make that clear. We cannot hope to satisfy God's demands for righteousness. We can't even come in his presence without being struck dead. He won't have us unless our hearts have been made new in Jesus Christ. So repent, the focus of your mind's eye, and then self-gratification, gratifying Jesus Christ, gratifying God. Confess with your mouth, Jesus
Jesus Christ as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Because he is the only way to approach the Father. One single, narrow way that's been made available to all people. Jesus Christ died for you. James 4 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God today. God, I love you. I praise you. And I pray that you would purify our minds, purify our hearts. It is only through Jesus Christ. God, we know that. And we praise you in the face of that, God. That you are not a God who says, just get to me however you can. That you are a God who says, this is how it is. This is how I made it. This is what I saved you for. Now follow me. So God, we profess faith in Jesus Christ. We confess that with our mouths, Lord, I pray. That everybody here would confess that with their mouths. That they believe in Jesus Christ. That he raised him from the dead. And that we can be at peace with God the Father. With you, Father. Because we are in Jesus. Purify our minds. Purify our hearts.